Good morning. I'm Matthew, Matthew Severns, and today our reading is from Genesis 2, 1 through 15, which can be found on page 2 of your Bible. So again, that is Genesis 2, 1 through 15. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed." And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden toward to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let me pray for us one more time. Father, thank you for your word. Help us now to receive it. Um, Would you do a healing work, a uh, corrective work, um, a hope-filling work? Would you orient our hearts around you and grant faith? Where there's resistance in the room, would you come and meet us with compassion? Where there's a need for like a space for you to speak a specific word, would you do it? Even beyond this text or beyond my words, would you speak to your people and draw them to yourself? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, well, hey, like I said, we've been in this series through Matthew, and we're taking just a couple of weeks to slow down and talk about rest first. And if you've missed it, essentially what we've been saying for a few weeks is that rest teaches us a lot about God, both because God's a God who commands rest, that says something about him. And this command was given to slaves who were coming out of Egypt, and so they're coming out of a, an economy of slavery, of oppression, where workers were commodities, where people were exploited, and they are freed, and they're in the wilderness now, and God's command to them is to rest. So we just kind of hear it as maybe a day off and a five-day work week, but this would have been a profound, earth-shattering, and it proved to be really difficult 
command for God's people. So we just stopped and said, there's something about God in his nature and character that he tells his people to rest. It says something about him. It also says something about us, that we're made dependent, that we're made to receive, that, that we are just creatures after all. And there's a drive even in this Genesis story for us to be more than just created creatures who want to know more and do more and be godlike. And so a drive to workaholism or even to slothfulness, which was the kind of the upside down version of pride in those spaces that actually has a, a, a godlike allure to it. If you knew more, did more, accomplished more, didn't need anybody else, if you can meet your own needs, then you'll be fine. That sounds like temptation from the evil one that you should not put your hope in God. You should put it in other things. And so rest has a training effect for us. We said it recalibrates our heart. So, so we spent a couple of weeks there. And what I want to do this morning is say that work also teaches us about God and about ourselves. And work is not the opposite of rest. I want to actually put both work and rest under the banner of worship there's actually a seamlessness to most of life where, where we're not meant to toggle between rest and apathy and stepping away from things and work and overworking and that sort of thing. There's meant to be something more seamed where it's together, where we're not kind of sure where we're passing from things I get paid for and things I don't get paid for, but are still matter and are significant. I want to kind of break our idea that rest is the thing that you get to do after you've worked really hard and you've earned it to something that you do to enjoy God. And work is actually a really good thing, not something to be avoided. So, so there's some confusion that I hope to kind of just touch on this morning. And we'll be honest in the limitations of one sermon. It'll probably raise more questions than it answers. But I want to just get us, get us started. So essentially what I want to say is that, that work actually teaches us about God as well. And I don't know how you think about work. I came across this quote from a guy named Wendell Berry. He's an ecologist and an economist. He's a poet. He's a theologian, and he is a farmer. And he writes this. He says, The significance and ultimately the quality of the work we do is determined by our understanding of the story in which we are taking part. Let me read that again. He says, The significance and ultimately the quality of the work we do is determined by our understanding of the story in which we are taking part. It just struck me this week to just ask, how do you understand the world around us and where does work fit into that? And what he's saying is essentially the story that you find yourself in, the story that you're using to make meaning of your life shapes how you think about work. Let me try to illustrate that. Depending on what situation you're in, the phrase come here could mean lots of different things. If you're in a burning building and a firefighter says come here, that is a word of rescue, and you would run and you would jump into their arms, right? You would let them carry you out of the building. If it was a parent who said that, and maybe you're super into whatever you're doing, and they said, come here, and you didn't want to stop, it could be like offensive to your autonomy as a child. If you were doing something wrong, and they said, come here, it could be this sense of guilt and shame that you got caught. The very same phrase, depending on what story you find yourself in in that moment, If it's said by a lover or by a stranger, it has a different kind of meaning. The very same words, come here. Even if God were to say to you, come here, it depends on how you see him. Maybe you see him like a firefighter. Maybe you see him like a parent and you're in trouble. Maybe you hear it like like a lover. Maybe it sounds like a stranger. How you understand God shapes how you understand even his call, come here. As is the work of 
The, the, the phrase or the idea or the statement, hey, there's work to do. I think how you understand that phrase, hey, you've got work to do. Depending on what story you find yourself in, that could be crushing. It could be something that you use to build your identity. It could be a place of like rest and trust and joy. It could mean lots of things depending on the story that you find yourself in. So I just want to start by asking, like, what is the story you're using to make sense of the world? And how does that story shaping how you think about work in general, your value, why you work, what kind of work is good work? I think all those things are answered in the story that you're telling yourself about why you exist, why you're here, and what God is trying to do in the world around us, which is why I want us to start in Genesis chapter 2. It's the origin story that God gives us to help us make sense of the world. It tells us not that we came out of some accident or just some causes or something that happened over time and chance, but with God's intention, with his purpose, with great design, with great joy, God is the one who designed this whole thing. And this text tells us that God is a God who both rests and works. So God is in the story with us as we're trying to make sense of both rest and work. And I thought it was a helpful place just to remind us and remember, hey, what is the story God is telling and how does that make sense of our work? I want to just talk about where does work come from? What is it for? Why is it hard? And how do we do good work? I just want to name those things from this text. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 2. We'll answer, where does work come from? He says, thus says, thus heaven and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. Hey, so where does work come from? Just two simple ideas. One, it comes from the character of God. It's his nature as the creator to do work and to create. The work that he had done, we read about in chapter one of Genesis, where he created everything that exists. So God, in his essence, is a worker. That's helpful and maybe orienting and maybe confusing when you think about only work as oppressive or something that someone else is should do and you're trying to get out of to hear that God actually in his character is one who works right he he worked and he said it was really good as he works through these days and these phases he stops and says hey this is good what I'm doing is good so work comes from the character of God it also comes from the command of God God shows us work he embodies work and he tells us to do work drop down to verse 15 The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So he tells God, God God tells man to work it and to keep it. If you go back to chapter 1, you see starting in verse 26, this kind of little more detail of how we created. He says this, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Right? There's huge dignity. And even when we think about the character of God, it's said to be made in his likeness and image is to be made to work. Again, not as a slave who's being exploited, but as one who's joining God in his creative work. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth. This dominion word is work words. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, both men and women. He created them. We'll see in, later on in chapter 2 that God creates woman as a, as a partner 
not to help man accomplish his work, but to partner together to accomplish the work of God. That God created this helper to actually do the work that God had designed humanity to do. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air of the heavens and over every living thing that moves along the earth. So God embodies it in his character and he commands it. He says, hey, be fruitful and multiply. This is work language. It has procreation for sure, but also has language about what you do with the world and have dominion and subdue and work the earth. So where does work come from? It comes from the heart of God. The God as the creator is one who designed and made work. And then we ask, what is work for? Why why work? It seems clear from this text that God created work for us to join him in what he is doing. This work that we do that we're made in his image to kind of pair it after is stuff that he was doing. This creating and um, kind of ordering and working and multiplying and making things fruitful is the work that God did. The reason why we do what we do, what work is for, is to join God in his creative work. Now, Now work needs to be defined just a little bit. Most of us have a very limited view of work simply as things that you get paid for. And so this is actually a pastor in our area, Tom Nelson, who pastors Christ Community Church, which, by the way, if you're looking for a good church, I love what God's doing here. But every Sunday, I recommend Christ Community. And people are like, seriously? Seriously. Hey, they are amazing leaders. They're not perfect, like no church is perfect. But I really respect what's happening at Christ Community in all their different locations. And so I just said it because I know looking for a church, whether you're not familiar with Christianity or you're changing churches or new to the area, it's an excruciating process. So if I can cut down your lead time, I would check out. Check out our church. Give us a chance and check out Christ Community. But Tom Nelson's one of the pastors there and he writes this. The word work also needs to be clarified for us. In our culture, the word work is almost exclusively tied to the things that we do that are economically monetized, namely our job. For example, when after a season of unemployment, we might say, I went back to work last week. Or in entering a season of retirement, we might say, I stopped working. Yet work needs to be redefined for us as making a contribution, not merely as acquiring compensation. Work needs to be defined, he says, as making a contribution, not simply acquiring compensation. He goes on to suggest that we should refer to like paid and non-paid work not simply a bifurcation of things we get paid for and then everything else. I found that super helpful because actually if you think about this story, when were Adam and Eve like not working? When they were cooking? Well, that's actually something that the Sabbath speaks to. When they were walking, when they were picking grain, when they were engaging with these trees as they were harvesting, like they they had this seamless world where they were at work until God told them to rest on the seventh day. And in fact, like they never got a paycheck, right? So everything they do, in a sense, was work. Work is designed by God, given to us to join him in his creative work. And there's something about it where we've like messed it up, where we've made like a sacred and a secular divide that the Bible doesn't really talk about. In fact, when you bring your offerings into the temple in the ancient world, you're bringing your work into worship seamlessly. Some said there's a, there's a porousness to the work and the worship, that we're bringing both your work into worship and your worship is affecting your work. We have too much divided the secular, secular and the sacred. In fact, we've made them one word. We, we've combined them 
in ways that actually I don't think are very helpful, or we've bifurcated them actually in ways that I don't think are, are very helpful. In fact, it puts you in a weird space where you're set up to think this is the stuff that you earned and deserved with your work, and then here's the stuff that you need God to help you with. But if you understand the way the Bible talks and the story that we're in, that everything belongs to him, it's all his. He created all of it, and then he invites us to join him in working around creation for the flourishing and the good of those around us to take care of the earth. This, this dominion and this, this work and keep it language in verse 15, scholars would tell us that it actually is used of the priests later in the Old Testament. This is priestly kind of work. To work it and to keep it, those words in the Hebrew are used of what the priests do when they come into the temple. And Adam's a farmer. Adam's a guy who's who's out in the fields. He's actually engaging with the flocks. And God gives this priestly language which speaks to us about the way that we actually encounter the world around us as people that are representing God to the world and representing the world back to God, which is what priests do. They represent God to other people, and they bring other people's burdens and concerns back to God. And so to think about work as a priestly activity makes sense of this this phrase of the priesthood of all believers, that whatever it is that you do, whether you get paid for it or not, you are doing priestly kind of work in this world. When you understand the story of God is to see the recreation and the flourishing of the world around us. So the story starts with God creating everything perfectly. But you think about the world you live in and you go like, hey man, you're you're pretty out of touch with the work world. It's really hard. It's really difficult. There's lots of jagged edges. There's lots of pain in the world. You're talking in ways that actually only make sense like in a perfect garden. They don't make sense in the world that we live in. And so you, you step back into the story and you ask the question, why is work hard? And I wonder how you would answer that. At first, I wonder what story you're using to make sense of the world. Like, why, why do you work? What are you accomplishing when you work? What are you longing for when you work? What are you frustrated about when you work? And maybe you should just stop even go like, what, what actually is your work? Because the way we're just trying to talk about work as something that we're not getting paid for is things where you make a, a contribution. That means when you volunteer. That means when you're with your kids. That means when you're at school. That means when you're retired. That means when you're with your neighbors. That means when you're in your backyard. That means when you're cooking. That means when you're cleaning. That means when you're just doing your regular life, you are working. So for God to bless our work is a way of saying God God blessing everything about what we do. But I wonder if the story you're telling yourself is that work is just this necessary evil that you have to do rather than something that God has invited you to come and join him in. Would you actually just take a moment for real and just say like, what is your work? If work is where you make a contribution, not necessarily a paycheck, it's not compensation, it's contribution. Like where, where is your work? What, what is your work? Just take a moment. Okay, with that in your mind, how do you make sense of that work? What story makes sense of why you're doing that? What value that has? how you think about what you need in the middle of it, what your hopes and goals would be. When we answer the question, why is work hard, the story of the Bible moves us towards what theologians call the fall or sin entering into the world. God created this perfect place for man to work with God actually seamlessly, even not even clothing, separating him 
from God. No barriers to God. A seamless world between the sacred and the secular. It was one thing. And then an enemy enters in, in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, lies to God's people, a compelling lie that you still hear all the time, that God has actually not given you everything that you need, and if he's withheld anything from you, you deserve that, you should demand that. In fact, you should just go take it and you should get it. So this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this idea that you would know more, you would be like God. Again, it's this God-like promise that work actually whispers to us how you could take care of yourself. You could build an identity. You could build a reputation. You could make something of yourself in such a way that your parents were finally proud of you. You could, you could prove this other person wrong. You could overcome the thing that you've been haunted by. You could actually use work in godlike ways to give value and validation to yourself. Man, if that's the story that you're telling and work is being used that way, I think it might explain the inordinate amounts of pride and shame, the stress and anxiety and the crushing weight that you feel. Because the lie in the garden that if they were just to take this fruit from knowledge of good and evil, they would be like God, they would have everything they wanted. It was a lie. And as soon as they did, everything began to break and unravel. The Bible's answer to the question, why is work hard? It's because of sin. It's because sin entered the world and sin, it's fascinating, right? If, if he's a gardener and this is something to do with a tree, this is a work-related sin. I never thought about that. It's sin at work for Adam, thinking he could do more, have more, accomplish more, that he needed more. And that, that lack of trust is what broke the world. And the story goes from the creation to, to fall. And it will get to redemption and restoration. The story doesn't stop in the fall, but we experience the effects of the fall. And I wonder how you answer the question, why is work hard with the story you're using to make sense of your life? Is it like your fault? Is it on your shoulders? Should you, should you fix it? Should you blame somebody else? Is it something you could ever get over? Like, how does it drive you the way work is difficult? This story that we find ourselves in in the scripture has God at work, making us in his image, joining him in his work, and then us saying in our hearts, no, I won't trust you. I want to be more like God. And in that space, everything breaks. And again, I just want to say a second time, when you look to work to be a place to find identity, it will crush you. Even if you got what you wanted, even if you pulled it off, you proved your old man wrong, you did it. It still crushes you because it's empty. It can't actually satisfy the deep places of your soul. That material thing doesn't have the power to satisfy the immaterial parts of your heart that only God can actually satisfy and fulfill. So the story of the Bible is that the work is hard because of the fall. And there's some fascinating things in this. Do right? you remember what he told them? He told them to, to be fruitful and to multiply and to, to keep the ground and to kind of cultivate it. In the curse that we see in chapter 3, as God says to his people, hey, here's the effects of the fall. Do you remember what he says to the woman? Have multiplied your pain in childbirth. Be fruitful and multiply. And it's hard now because of sin. And he says to Adam, hey, you're supposed to cultivate the land and have dominion over it and see its fruitfulness. What does he say to Adam? Hey, cursed is the ground. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, and thorns and thistles from that space you shall bring forth the food that you eat. The very commands that God gives us are now seen as really difficult in light of the fall. Same commands, go be fruitful, 
Go, go work the land. Go, go cultivate. Go, go do the work that God has designed for you. And now sin has messed that up and made it hard. And what's beautiful in this kind of cursing section is before he gets to those spaces, God makes a promise. He actually is speaking to his ancient enemy, Satan, the one who appears as this snake that lies to God's people. And in verse 15 of chapter 3 in Genesis, we see the first promise of redemption. God says, I will put enmity between you, this serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And scholars would say this is the the proto-euangelion. It's the very first explanation of the gospel. So right in the middle of the fall and the brokenness, the story of God is a promise of redemption. It's a promise away from the futility that we experience. It's a promise that God is going to come and make all things right. This is a prophecy about Jesus, one who would come from the woman. He would live a regular life for 30 years, just a carpenter doing tons of work. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus for 30 years lived in almost obscurity as a carpenter, as a worker, and just three years as a preacher? We have this like sacred, secular thing upside down. Jesus models for us a valuing of the everyday work as he spends the majority of his time in that space, which is where you spend the majority of your time. So the Son of God came into the world to redeem everything, including your work. So redemption is actually named in the middle of this declaration of why things are hard. Because the Bible story goes from creation to fall to redemption and then ultimate restoration. And so this command to join God in doing his work is still a command for us. In the light of what Jesus has accomplished for us, we have hope actually to see the world renewed. To join God in blessing people and to cultivate a land in such a way that there's flourishing. And to be fruitful in such a way that people are blessed around us. And to use our work the way God used his work to create and to help and to see flourishing. To do actually really good work. He didn't just leave us in the fall. He came and sent his son who would crush the head of the serpent. Even though on the cross you could say he was bruised in his death that then would result in resurrection that we celebrated just a few weeks ago. That, that story gives meaning even to your work, even to the places where you're frustrated and you go like, when will this ever change? What do I do about this? To bring Jesus's redemption into your work is what the Bible story would not just like encourage you to do, it would allow you to do. That you don't have to come and create your own thing. You don't have to be godlike. You don't have to harness all of this. You can trust him and join him in his redeeming work. Because what he did on the cross was aimed at renewal. It was aimed at, at, at helping. It was aimed at actually being restoration. And, and we see the end of the book of the story has another garden where everything is perfect again. Where we have weapons of war beat into plowshares and pruning hooks. Where there's peace again in a new heaven and a new earth. And so the Bible story locates our work in 2022 in the season of redemption, still affected by the fall, working toward ultimate restoration. And the work you do, whether you get compensated monetarily or not, should be, could be aimed at joining God in this work of seeing flourishing happen. And you just like live in Kansas. You're just like a regular person. You just like have a regular job. 
You just watch little kids. You're just a student at school. You're just trying to figure out algebra. You're just a regular person. And what God is doing in his story is involving you in his redemptive, creative, flourishing work. Hey, that's way better than an identity that you could build for yourself. It's way better than a security that you could try to provide for yourself. Because if the story you're telling yourself is that you have to do more and try harder, that story, again, I think leads to ultimately crushing you. The biblical story is that God has already done all the work. That Jesus did it on the cross in such a way that actually brings about redemption and restoration for us. So, so, so fourthly, how do we do good work? Well, I've kind of been saying it a bunch of times, but we, we start by remembering God's story. The first thing we do to do good work is to remember God's story. And we looked at a passage in Colossians a couple of weeks ago about how rest was pointing to Jesus, not a couple weeks ago, it feels like that, a couple of days ago, last Sunday. In Colossians chapter 2, it tells us that the Sabbath is, is a foreshadowing of what Christ was going to provide for us. So we shouldn't get all hung up on what days and how to operate and how to observe it because the Sabbath rest is pointing to the rest we have in Christ. So rest has its fulfillment in Christ. So does work. Colossians chapter 1, just one chapter before that. Listen to this in chapter 1 verse 15, he says this, He is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Jesus, the firstborn over all creation, which is where the story of the Bible starts. So Jesus comes on the scene, the firstborn of all creation. That is the story. For by him all things were created. He owns it all in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things, including your work. Whether you get paid for it or not. Where you are making a contribution, that space sits under the lordship of Jesus. So you get to ask inside this story, how can I join God in the work he's doing around me? to, To work and to keep to be fruitful, to actually see flourishing happen. And here's the deal. I think there's as many answers to that question as there are people in the room. And then even more answers to the situations that you have. But I wonder if you stop and ask, how do I join God in this thing that I'm doing? In this thing that I give my time to, this thing that dominates my hours, because you're not dominated by this room. You're here just for a very short amount of time. And if you're in a small group, it's a very short amount of time. Most of your life is lived under the dominion of Christ in work that's not looking like this. But this passage would tell us that Christ rules over even that. And so even just to train our hearts to stop and say, here's this mundane thing, and I'm so frustrated by it, or, or I love it. It's what I trained for. It's what I went to school for. It's the job that I always wanted. I'm in the seat that I long to be in. Now, how do I use this thing, this job, this hour, this space, this relationship, this opportunity, this obligation, this thing that I'm doing, how do I join God in his work? I actually don't want to cheapen it by giving you like three easy ways. I would love for you to ask because you, as I look across the room, like you do lots of different kinds of work. And to stop and think about you, even you, that you could join God in his redemptive work. And it's not just by doing evangelism. And it's not just by getting enough money to put something in the offering plate. And it's not by coming and serving on a team. That is not the primary work. The primary work is the work you do every day, day in and day out, to join God in his creative act. 
Let's not limit it simply to evangelism, although do evangelism. Let's not limit it simply to giving resources, although we'd love for you to give some resources. <laughs> Don't limit it to that, though. Would you actually see everything you do as contributing to the work of God? So remember the story that you're in. He is Lord of the Sabbath, and he is Lord of work, and that gives your work meaning. I just think that's really, really beautiful. Secondly, how do you do good work? You think of yourself as a steward, not an owner. The way the Bible talks and the way Jesus instructs his followers is that everything they have has been given to them by God, and they're stewarding his resources, which means they don't own it. And they will give an account for how they use, which has like work, it's effort language, how they invest and take these things that they were given and how they multiply those. And in fact, in some of those stories of Jesus giving illustrations about that, when people have not trusted God, they've tended not to steward very well or at all the things he gave them. And the judgment in those passages comes when someone sat on what God gave them. And the commentary there is that they didn't trust him. They saw him as cruel. They saw him as unloving. Right? The story they were telling themselves is that this creator God was, was unmerciful, that he was demanding, that he was exacting, that, that he actually shouldn't have more than he had. And that space of rebellion is exactly what happened to the garden tree. When we hear that story about God, we won't steward what he's given us. But, but stewards have to take into account all that they've been given. And it's more than just your job. Again, we're not thinking just about compensation. We're thinking about contribution, which means your relationships, your neighborhoods, your your family of origin, the people that are in your life, things that have special needs attached to them, places where you feel overwhelmed, like you're being asked to steward all of that. Your, Your struggle with addiction, places of betrayal, things that have been really hard, places where you didn't get the support that you needed, you're being asked to steward all of that. Everything that God has allowed He's asking you to steward. And you have to steward all of it together and actually just lean into where you get compensation to the neglect of those other areas of life would be not good stewardship. It would actually be poor stewardship. Let me give you two two illustrations. When I was in grad school, my very last semester, and I wish it had been my first semester, my very last semester, the professor stands up on the kind of first day of school and we're getting the syllabus and everyone's feeling the weight of all the work they have to do. And he actually says out loud, the best thing for you might be to get a C or a D in this class. And I was like, what? And he said, the most holy thing, the most godly thing might be for you to get a C or a D in this class. And I'm like, okay, what's the, okay, what's the class about? And he says, because you have so many other things you're responsible for, for you to do the work to get an A in this class might mean you neglect really important other relationships and areas. And I was like, where were you my freshman year? Like, where were you that first semester? But he says, hey, as you think about all of your life, to excel in one area to the neglect of another may not be healthy for you. That was really meaningful for me. And then when I was in high school, I was trying a little side hustle to raise some money, and a guy who owned about three acres asked me to clear the land. Kind of a city boy. I don't really know what that's about, but I bring my rake, and I'm going to go clear these three acres. (laughs) Tons of trees and lots of leaves and lots of sticks. And I'm not actually sure. I'm still not sure what he wanted me to do. But I worked my tail off all day. And I cleared about a 40 by 40 foot area. It was immaculate. I mean, you would want a picnic where I, I got every single leaf. There was no roots. There was no tree limbs. I mean, everything was picked up in that one area. Boss man comes into the day. I'm eight hours like, man, 40 by 40, like. He's just like, hey, do you see the rest of this whole area? 
Like you neglected the other three acres that you're supposed to be clearing, right? The detailed work that I had done in that space to make this one thing amazing neglected the vast majority of what I was supposed to be doing. I think I still got paid, but I learned a valuable, valuable lesson there to not just like pace yourself and not cut corners in one area so you can finish the job in time, but to think about stewarding everything. And it may be that you're working too much in one area to the neglect of other things relationships, your, your health. You have to steward even those things, right? To be underneath God's creative order. It's not just your job, right? It's an entire world, which means everything you've been given, you get to and you have to steward. So, so remember the story that you're in. That's how you do good work. And I love that Dorothy Sayers says, the only like Christian work is good work. A good work is quality work. It's work that's done really well. And the story of God allows us to do that thinking about being stewards, not just of uh, one area, but everything that we have. And that actually has a space where we trust God as the one who gave it all to us. That's actually how we move towards good work. Stopping the delusion of the secular and sacred divide and seeing everything that you do underneath this priesthood of all believers where, where you are bringing people to God and God to people. That's what priests do. And the scripture says that we are the the priesthood of all believers in that space we're called to actually mirror that and bring to the people around us the blessings of God, the goodness of God, the glory of God, the, the story of God. And as we think about that, we think about how Jesus himself broke through the divide, united the secular and sacred, lived this perfect life in a way that actually made us possible for us to be forgiven and free. There's a ton for us to learn about work, but maybe we could just stop here and say, you do good work when you look to Jesus to be the one that accomplished everything that you needed. You look to the work of Jesus to be the great high priest who stood in your place to bring you to God, actually, to atone for all of your work sins, to make it possible for you to be loved and received and accepted and forgiven so you could show that kind of blessing to the world around you. I want us to be a kind of people that see God in the middle of our work And not just what happens in this space, but where you spend the majority of your life. And if you put yourself in God's story, then you can join him in the creation, fall, redemption, restoration narrative that he's not just telling, he's working to accomplish. And we remind ourselves when we gather about this story, which is why we take communion every week. It's a a declaration that Jesus actually came to put a deposit down. The scriptures say that his, his death and burial and resurrection was the first fruits of our redemption. This is offering language. It was the first fruits of our redemption promising us that God was going to actually fully restore everything that was broken in the fall. I don't know what story you're telling yourself that you're finding meaning in in your work, but God invites you to put yourself in his story and to join him in what he's doing. And you start by trusting in Jesus in that place. So for Christians, you renew your trust. You remember what he's done. You are nourished by that as you take the bread, you dip it in the cup. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're invited to trust Christ this morning. If you're ready to do that, you can come and take communion this morning. And I would love to talk with you afterwards about what it means to follow after Jesus. If you're not ready for that, you can just stay in your seat. There's some prayers in the back of your bulletin that would give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray. But ask God to actually help you and maybe spend some time examining what is the story you're telling yourself? How are you making meaning of your life? And where does work fit into that? You could spend some time in prayer during that space. For everybody who's coming to take communion, would you ask the same question and bring God into what you're feeling when it comes to your work? There'll be servers over here in the front. 
um, who will serve, serve you. There's a gluten-free station over to my right, your left, as well as some individual packaged communion cups, if that's more comfortable for you. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take communion, and then we'll sing together again. Jesus, thank you for your work. Thanks for accomplishing on the cross everything that we needed. Thanks for making sense of our work, for, for not just like patting us on the head and condescending to us, but actually giving meaning. Thanks for creating us. We owe everything to you, and you gave us everything, which is amazing. You're generous and you're good. We worship you for the work that you do, the work of redemption, the work of creation. Tie our hearts to your story, we pray, even as we remember your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. Our Christians, come when you're ready.